It's John chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the, womb, to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been laid on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who'd reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we read that text of a, a woman named Mary who believes she saw the resurrected Jesus, we are, we're just so distant from that, that moment, that event that happened on this morning some 2,000 years ago. And so I pray as we gather around the story this morning, would you open our hearts to experience what Mary experienced uh, that morning, the resurrected Jesus speaking our name. Help us. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my son Micah said something to me a couple of months ago that I have not said in a long time, and it worried me. Uh, it was a February day, and like every February day uh, this past February, it was, it was 20 degrees outside, there was no sun, it was windy, it was cold, and everyone was miserable. And so we, having three boys, like we, that misery needed to get out of our house and somewhere else. And so we're like, we just made up reasons, get them out. And we got them out, and we, just, we took them uh, to, uh, to a mall, we just shopping, didn't buy them anything, just run around the store, like just go, right? And we took them to the mall shopping, and then we went uh, to find the, like the cheapest possible lunch, Taco Bell, bean burritos, we split some bean burritos, we split a cinnamon twist four ways, right? Cheap lunch, then we had, we had some free movie tickets, uh, so we went to movie theater to see Lego Movie 2, we, we buy some popcorn, we sit down, and... And my son Micah, he's five years old, he's just processing, he's processing this, and he just, he starts, he starts talking to me, and he says, shopping, and Taco Bell for lunch, 
and movie and popcorn. And then he yells out loud enough for the entire theater to hear, this is the greatest day ever. <laughs> right? And as a dad, I'm like, you're right. I, I gave this to him. I just want everyone to know that was my son who said that. But then I'm like, I start getting real with myself. And it's like, I, you know, I bought him bean burritos for lunch. I don't even know if those things are still legal anymore. Right? Like, I didn't buy him anything at the mall. I really didn't do anything. Um, and yet, he just walked through that day with wide-eyed wonder and, and gratitude. And so once I got past the, like, yeah, that was, I'm, the, I'm his dad, right? Once I got past that, I just being like, when was the last time I just, just stepped back and said, this is the greatest? I just, you know, exploded with gratitude, with, with joy. When was the last time I said that? Uh, can you remember the last time you said that. And maybe it's, maybe it's just today, this morning, right? We've all, we got our pastels on uh, today, which just screams inner joy, right? Which it's strange that, that Easter is a day of, of, of joy, of, of taking pictures with kids, of Easter outfits, because Easter, John 20, the text I just read, it starts at a garden tomb. It starts in a, in a cemetery, in a graveyard, in a familiar scene, a woman weeping at the death of her friend. So how do we get from there, Garden Tomb, to pastels this morning? That's a long, strange journey. How, how, how do we get there? And the Bible gets there by actually telling the story of, of three gardens. Before you get to the Garden Tomb, there's, there's two more gardens. And if you, if you want to get back to the place of, of joy, of hopefulness... You have to take that journey. That's what I want to do this morning. The three gardens that, that, that lead us to the garden tomb. And the first garden in the Bible is on the first page of the Bible, the Garden of Eden. Uh, as a church, we've been going through the book of Genesis. So those of you who are new, like this is, this is you know, why Genesis on Easter? Well, that's, that's the book we've been going through together. And when God creates the world in Genesis 1 and 2, he creates a garden. And this is what he says about this garden. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Eat of every tree of the garden. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So the first command of the Bible is eat almost everything you see. It's like finally a command we can probably all get behind, right? Like that's, I like that. Let's... Let's, let's make that our life first, right? That's, that's a good command. And this tracks with my theory that uh, one of the best evidences of the existence of God is our trees. Like, I don't know if you know this. There, there's this tree where if you, if you take the berries off the tree and then you roast them and then you grind them. <laughs> this first service, people started laughing halfway through. You know where I'm going with this. You grind them and then you heat water up and you pour the hot water over those grinds, you get coffee. And there's caffeine in coffee, right? It's, it's amazing. Like if you've, ever, if you've ever drank a cup of coffee, if you've ever bit into a, a juicy orange, if you've ever eaten a plump apple, have you ever heard of this thing called chocolate? All from trees. All there in the garden. And God starts his, his like command to, uh, to Adam and Eve, eat it, all of it. And this is why Dallas Willard, an author and philosopher uh, from USC, he says this about God. God is the happiest, most joyful being in the universe. 
God is the happiest, most joyful being in the universe. What do you think of that? Because anytime I've ever thrown that out to someone, like, it's like, well, he's something else first, right? He's holy first, or he's, he's powerful first. And yet, you read Genesis 1 and 2, certainly he's powerful, he's holy, all those things. But let me ask, has an unhappy person ever like personally prepared a feast for you, told you to go and eat, and then went and sulked in their room in negativity? Right, like hospitality people, like people who, who create food, like create a feast. They're like, they're, those are the people you want to hang out with. Like you want to get invited to their house on Easter. And that's what God is like. He's the, the happiest, most joyful being in the universe, which means if I'm sitting there next to my son and throughout the entire day I've spent and I've missed the wonder of bean burritos and cinnamon twists and popcorn, right? You heat up corn and oil and you pie pops and it's delicious. You pour butter on it. It's even more delicious, right? I've missed all of the wonder of this. If I have a joy problem, I have a God problem. And we'll get there in a second, but I know a lot of you are thinking, because anytime Genesis gets read, it's like, but wait a minute, there's the one tree you can't eat from. What's up with that? Why would God put a tree in the garden and then say, don't eat from it? And that's, a, that's one of the most common questions of of Genesis 3, but it's, it's kind of a dumb question. No offense. Let's imagine this. Imagine that, like this week you get invited to, let's say, a Chiefs player. You know, maybe let's go a, a level higher. It's Patrick Mahomes that said, come over to my house, and I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to prepare a feast for you, and he, he gets barbecue from all the best places in Kansas City, right? Casey Joe's and Q39 and Jack Stack, wherever, whatever your spot is, he's got it. It's there. It's a, per, it's a feast, and he, he gets out, and he says, listen, you can, go, you can do whatever you want in my house. You eat the feast, go, you know, go play outside. Whatever you want to do, go and do it. This is my place. Enjoy yourself. There's just one room. I'm gonna, just don't go in that one room. It's locked. Please don't go in there. But everything else is yours. My guess is like you're not going to spend a single second like, why can't we go in that one room? Like, what's wrong with this guy? Like, what's, what's he hiding in there? What's in that? Like, well, you're not going to do that. You're just, you got Q39 for me. You don't care about the room. And yet, Genesis 3, what happens is all that human beings care about is the one place we can't go. We miss the feast. And so we would never do that to a host of a party, and yet we do it to God. And that's precisely what happens next in Genesis 3. And listen, I'm going I'm to introduce something really strange to you and just say, if you want me to talk more about this, you have to come back next week, because uh, we're going to preach on Genesis 3 next week. Um, but uh, the serpent comes, which is in like an angelic, supernatural, probably demonic being. I know it's, okay, it's weird. Come back next week. But this being comes, and what, what he says to the human beings is this. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which hopefully you've been paying attention. That's not what God said. God says, like, coffee, chocolate, oranges, apples, go. That's what God said. And, and the serpent says, you can't eat any of that, that stuff. And suddenly, like, this begins to make sense of where I was at with, with, with Micah, right, is, is he's focused on what he's been given, the feast available to him, and I've missed it. Which Genesis 3 would say, like, that's the heart of all of your problems, is you don't have joy because you've missed who God is. And you're focused on the one thing that's not yours, and you missed all that is. And that's what happens, is one of the, the human beings, Eve, uh, responds to the serpent, and here's what she says. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
Now, initially, it sounds like she's disagreeing with the serpent, right? No, no, we can eat from trees of the garden, but she's actually not. She's agreeing with the serpent. And she, attached, she you know, tacks on this line that it, God didn't say where, yeah, we can't eat of that one tree. We can't even touch it. And she's actually, in that, in that statement, she's actually agreeing with the serpent. Yeah, God's got this weird thing about this one tree. We can't go to this one tree. We can't even touch it. What's wrong with him? What's up with that? God never said that. What he, what he said was, eat all that you want, just not this. And that's all that we could think about as human beings. And I would, I would say this. Everything that's wrong in this world now is because we have missed who God really is. We don't see God for how he really is. We don't see his lavish joy. We don't see his extraordinary generosity. And, and maybe that's why Jesus said, if you want to take up life with me, if you want to follow me, you have to have the faith of a child. Because children, right, they take everything in gratitude and joy and open-handedness. That's why, like, my kids at Christmas, like, we give them a gift, and then they love the box that the gift came in. It's like, let's, I'm going to live in this box, right? That's, that's how they approach Christmas. Because you have to, like, it's a low bar of gratitude and joy for kids. We have to teach them, adults, we have to teach them the lack of gratitude, the lack of joy for them to get there. But they start in this place of open-handedness and welcome and, and, and hands full. And that's how you're supposed to see God, so I would just ask, how, how do you see God? Do you believe in him? One, like, do you see all of the incredible, like, like, the things you can taste and eat and live? Do you see all of these things around you? And do you wonder, why are they here? Who put them there? Do you believe in God? And if you do believe in God, do you see him as this joyful, full being who wants to give you life? Who wants to share his feast with you? Or do you see him as someone who just, who's just takes who grabs from you. What happens is, is Eve sees God as not the most joyful human life. Neither does Adam. They eat the fruit. And the result of this decision, as God said in, in Genesis 2, was that now death has entered our world. And here's what happens at the end of Genesis 3, the end of this garden story. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed an angel and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And this is where death enters the human story, because now between us and the tree of life is what's described for us as an angel with a sword, saying, you're not coming this way. You, can't, you have lost your access to the tree of, of life. And maybe you hear that and say, well, that sounds like a bit intense, right? We eat, a, we eat fruit and God said, you have to die, right? Like, that seems in, intense. And if, maybe if that was the end of the Bible, it would, like, that would be a pretty depressing ending. We would not be here if that was the end of the biblical story. And yet there's this verse within Genesis 3, before the man and the woman are removed from the garden, God speaks to that serpent demonic being. Again, come back next week for that. He speaks to this being, and here's what he says. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so God speaks over this being who introduced death and disobedience and Everything that takes our joy from us now, the, the serpent introduced to the garden, 
And God says to this being, one day a descendant from a woman is going to come and he is going to bruise your head, which is when you, someone's head gets bruised, that's a mortal wound, right? They, you're going to die. So, uh, one day a descendant of the woman is going to kill you. And when he kills you, you will bruise his heel. You'll hurt him as well, but he won't die. You will. And then God removes them from the garden. So whatever you think about God in this moment, he says, I'm going to do something about this. As he removes Adam and Eve from the way to the tree of the life. So that's Garden 1, the Garden of Eden. And for, for a long time, this was like just this enigmatic verse. What does it mean that there will be a descendant of the woman who will bruise uh, the head of the serpent and yet his heel will be bruised? What does that mean? And you don't have an answer to that question until the second garden in the Bible, which is the Garden of Gethsemane. So a few hundred years pass from Genesis 3, and, and Jesus, the person whom we gather around as a church, enters into this world, and he claims to be the son of the woman who's going to bruise the head of the serpent. You know, what does it mean? Like, when, what does it mean that he'll bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel? What does that mean? And you find that worked out in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden, what you find in uh, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew was a friend of Jesus. He was there in the Garden that night, and when he wrote about that Garden... He describes Jesus as first being full of sorrow. And the word for sorrow there, it's always connected to the grief of death. It's a death word, right? It's, it's the sorrow at death. Jesus is wrestling with the sorrow of death in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the other uh, word that's used to describe Jesus is that he's troubled. He's anxious. He's burdened. And another follower of Jesus, uh, a man named Luke, says Jesus was, he's actually a doctor, he says Jesus was so burdened, so anxious, that he was sweating blood. That whatever he was wrestling with in the Garden of Gethsemane was so intense, was so real, that he was sweating blood. And it just raises the question, what, what's happening here? Because if the gospel's true, Jesus is the Son of God, and God's the, the happiest, most joyful being in the universe, how did the most, like the most joyful, happy, creator of coffee and chocolate being, how did he go from that to sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. What happens? What's going on here? And the reality, like Jesus in this garden, what's, what Christians have believed for centuries is that Jesus in this garden is undoing what happened in, in the other garden, in Genesis 3. He's undoing death itself. And so in one sense, like me sitting there next to Micah, uh, yes, I should be more grateful, right? I should, there, I should see this world as having incredible opportunities of joy. And yet, I'm 36, he's five. I've lived a little life. And life takes, I mean, it takes joy from you, right? You live for long enough and you will face enormous suffering in this world. Death has entered into our story. And so all of us in this room, we come in carrying a piece of death in our own hearts, whether it's someone we lost that we loved, whether it's a, a, a peace we're suffering in this world now, a burden, a heartache, we all bring those things in with us. And so in one sense, yes, like God, if I know God, I should, this should, like joy should be easy for me. And yet in another sense, I live in this world, right? The world that's coming together in the Garden of Gethsemane is Jesus is wrestling through death itself. And if Jesus sweat drops of blood as the king of the universe, you and I, like we're going we're gonna to be burdened. We're going to experience Death, and when you when you experience death, when you experience suffering in this world, there's only, like there's only three ways to deal with it. One is 
to say, well, death is the end. We all die. That's the, that's the end of this life, and there's nothing more after, and just, deal, like, just accept it and be brave and live in the face of that. That's what a lot of people would say. Um, I don't think many people actually believe that, but that's people say that. Two is I think what most of us do in this culture, which is we suppress what death is trying to communicate to us. We suppress the lesson. Which is why we, you know, we dress the body up to make it look alive, why we have a short funeral service and a long lunch after. We don't want to deal with what death is trying to say. And even right now, you're like, dude, I got my pastels on. Why are we talking about death on Easter? Let's go. Let's move on, right? Let's go. Let's, let's, let's push past this. But I, like, just from like, what is death trying to say to us? Because the third way to deal with death is to let it speak. Like, let it speak its meaning, what it's trying to communicate to us. And I think there's something inherent in all of us when someone dies that we love where like we we sense there's there's more here. A few months ago, uh, I flew to Chicago to lead the service for my aunt Sandy, and for the day before the service, I just sat around with my uncle and my cousins, my family, just asking, "Tell me stories. What do you want what do you want what do you want me to say in the service?" And my uncle Chuck kept saying, you know, you say whatever you want to say. And it's like, Chuck, I got some stories on you. Are you sure you want to grant me that permission? And he just kept saying, you say whatever you, you want to say. You'll do a good, a good job. And so I, I write the eulogy. Um, I go, I'm ready, I'm ready to speak the next morning. And, and he comes up to me. He's 80 years old. He comes up to me with a little handwritten note. And he just says, he says what I, here's what I want you to say. I want you to say that my wife... Just She cared for us so well while she was on earth, and I want you to tell my family that now they need to live in a way as to make her proud. And he gives me this little handwritten note with that, that on it. And it's just like, like even in that moment, my uncle had the sense, like, she, her death is trying to tell us something. Listen. Because no one thinks death is the end. No one thinks we just die and nothing we did matters and eventually we'll all be forgotten. No one lives like... That. And so in one sense, like I lack joy because I, I have cut myself off from the happiest being in the universe, and I miss so much of what he's giving me. But in a deeper sense, I, joy is hard for me because I live in a world of death. And if I'm willing to actually let death do its work in me, speak a lesson to me, if, I, if I'm willing to see Jesus enter that world in the Garden of Gethsemane and see that in that garden, as Jesus wrestles with his own death, his own mortality, there's... there's there's something cosmic going on, right? He's sweating blood. There's something happening here. That he's entering into a world of suffering. You and I live every day. Everything that we have lost, every pain that we've experienced in this life, Jesus is entering that in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's about to have his heel bruised because he's going to take all of that on himself. All of the death, the suffering, the pain, the hardship you and I walk through, that's the heel bruise Jesus is going to experience. He's going, to be, he's going to get struck, and yet, and yet he will, in that act, kill death itself. He will strike the head of the serpent. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, for the second time, you get a man in a garden wrestling with a command about a tree. And in the Garden of Eden, Adam, as he wrestles with the command, the command is very clear. Eats, right? Eats and you die. Obey and you live. Disobey and you die. And in the second garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's the reverse. For Jesus, if Jesus obeys the Father, he dies. And if he disobeys, he lives. This is Eden part two. And Jesus, in this moment, is not just preparing for his earthly death. He's preparing to undo all that happened in the Garden of Eden. He's preparing to give us a world of joy back. He's preparing to go under the sword the angel put between us and the way of, to the tree of life, to open that way back up to us. 
He's going to have his heel bruised so that he can crush the head of death itself. And he is opening the way for us back into a world of life and joy. He's going to die. And so in this garden, garden, Jesus, unlike the first garden, commits his way to God, even though it means his death, to give us the tree of life back, eternal life back, to take death out of our story. And it's why George Herbert, a pastor in the 1700s in England, as he thought about Jesus' death on the cross, he says this about the cross. It's Jesus speaking from the cross, a piece of poetry. All you who pass by, behold and see. Mankind stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree, the tree of life to all, but not to me. And so Jesus goes, and now the tree of life for Christians is not in the Garden of Eden, protected by a sword, which would kill us to get back to. It's now a cross. And it grants us entry back into the world we lost. And so from the Garden of Eden, we go to the Garden of Gethsemane and And from the Garden of Gethsemane, we go to a cross where Jesus dies. And from there, we go to the garden tomb, John 20. And in John 20, three of Jesus' closest friends are going to the tomb. John mentioned them. It's Peter. It's this person uh, mentioned, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is probably John referring to himself. So it's Peter, it's John, and it's it's Mary. And in verse 2, Mary says this to Jesus' two other friends, Peter and John. She ran, Mary ran, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. This is really important. They do not know where the body is. And they assume someone has taken it. And this continues like all the way even through uh, Mary encountering angels. She still thinks someone has stolen Jesus' body and taken it, and she just wants to find the body of her dead friend. Right? I mean, all of us, like the body matters. When someone we love dies, if someone were to steal that body, we'd be broken, which is why Mary's weeping in the garden because her assumption from the beginning is someone has stolen her friend's body. And this is really important because what this means is no one, not even Jesus' closest disciples, closest friends, Mary, Peter, John, none of them expected Jesus to be alive. They all thought he's dead. And they all want to know where his body went. Right? That's, that's the assumption of the first 15, 14 verses of John 20. No one was expecting Jesus to be alive. This is really important. And so, I mean, think of it like this. My my senior year in high school, uh, my parents decided to do something really nice for me, which was uh, to throw me a surprise uh, birthday party. And so behind my back, my mom uh, invited uh, a bunch of my friends to to have a surprise party. But the the problem was the, the day she picked was the day that we had a, a practice round for our upcoming state golf tournament in southern Indiana. And what we did every year is we played the practice round, and then we went to a place called Gray Brothers Cafeteria. This will mean nothing to any of you because it's in Indiana, um, although there was one person in first service who'd been there, and it was like, it made my day. Uh, but Gray Brothers Cafeteria, because at Gray Brothers Cafeteria is amazing fried chicken, maybe the best. I don't know if I want to go that strong, but fried chicken, but the best macaroni and cheese in, in the world. And so we play our practice round, we stop for dinner, and then we, we go home. And so my mom comes to me, she's like, listen, I need you to come home a little early. So after your practice round, you can't eat there, you need to come straight home. And I was like, mom, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and she's like, yes, yes, like I'm your mother, I'm telling you that this is what you're going to do. I was like, mom, I'm not going to do that. 
And so we start this like escalating conversation where the punishments get worse and worse. And it's like, I'm going to ground you. I'm going to take your car. And I'm just like, mom, listen, whatever is the just and right punishment uh, that you feel to give to me, uh, go ahead. But I'm going to have fried chicken and macaroni and cheese, whatever the punishment is up to and including death itself. And so finally, she just breaks. She's like, I am I'm preparing you a surprise birthday party. You need to come because you're going to have friends here at, the, at, at our house. And so please, don't go to Great Brothers and, you know, come to the surprise birthday party. So I was like, all right, Mom. So I did, I did the right thing. Uh, we went. We had our practice round. We ended it early. We went to Great Brothers Cafeteria and made it home in time for our surprise uh, birthday party. But, but what that meant was like when I went to the surprise birthday party, it was like all my friends, I'm like, oh my gosh, thanks for coming. I didn't know, right? Like that's, that's what the surprise birthday party uh, became. And, and a lot of people, when they read the end of the Gospels, it's like they think the, you know, Peter and John and Mary, they're rocking like, oh, where's Jesus? He's dead. Oh, you know, it's like they're expecting resurrection. He, they're not. They think he's dead. They think someone took his body. And they are more surprised at a resurrection than any of us are. And listen, what, what makes the resurrection so believable to me, and I, I get this is a stretch, but there are three undeniable historical facts when it comes to the resurrection. First is Jesus' tomb was empty. Everyone agreed on this. And why you, you see early Christian preachers in the book of Acts saying, go to his tomb. You go to David's tomb, he's still there. You go to Jesus' tomb, he's not there. The tomb is empty. Secondly, no one knows what happened to Jesus' body. No, 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 who took, we don't know. Except for there are, thirdly, the third fact, there are hundreds of Christians who claimed from very early on that they saw Jesus' body resurrected alive, which is why we can't find it, because it descended to heaven. Hundreds of Christians, including Mary, including Peter, including John, gave their lives to say, I saw him. He's risen. Whatever you think about Easter this morning, those three things are historically true. And yet, like, that doesn't, that's not what convinced me. Facts are nice, but what, what moves me in this story is what happens at the end of John 20. Where Mary is there, she's weeping. And she hears a voice, why? Why are you weeping? And she's in a garden, and so she assumes it's, it's the gardener. She speaks to the gardener. Well, they, my friend died, and someone took his body, and I don't know where it is. And then the gardener, who's Jesus, he speaks her name, Mary. And that's her moment of belief. The way Jesus speaks her name is evidence to her of who it is that is speaking to her. And I love the way the Jesus Storybook Bible describes this moment, this scene. Only one person said her name like that. She could hear her heart thumping. She turned around. She could just make out a figure. She shaded her eyes to see. She thought she was dreaming, but she wasn't dreaming. She was seeing Jesus. Only one person said her name like that. His voice had stolen her soul. And Jesus stands there, reaches out, his hand to lead her out of the garden tomb and back to the garden of Eden, to the tree of life. The way back to joy, to wonder, to gratitude, to a life hands full is Jesus. 
hand outstretched, who speaks your name in a way that no one else has or ever will, who has gone into a grave, who has gone to a cross to give you back everything that you will ever lose in this life. And if you want joy to be your life, you have to know this God. He's the happiest being in all of the universe. There is no one like him. Instead of seeing, or instead of missing so often all that he's offering us, instead of getting lost in a world of, of death and suffering, this side of the Garden of Eden, the Garden Tomb, Easter morning, is an invitation back to the life we were meant to have. Because all of us in this morning come in with burdens, with sufferings, with death on our minds. Some of us more than others. Right? I'm not, I'm not saying in, in the fact that Jesus brings you joy that the Christian life is easy. It's not. The heel of Jesus was bruised. The garden of Gethsemane, the cross, is our moment of salvation. Salvation was won for me on a cross. This world is not my home. This world is a hard, difficult place. And we all bring those things in this morning, our burdens, our own suffocating trouble, our own anxiety. So what are they for you? What are your burdens? What's weighing you down? What has you weeping at the sight of death? Now, I don't know why you came in this morning, why you're here for Easter, but I know why God showed up on that first Easter Sunday to show each and every one of us that no matter how bad we have it, no matter what our struggle is, no matter how shameful we feel, no matter what you feel, no matter how paralyzing life gets, all of those things are killed at the empty tomb of Jesus. And if you would pay attention, if you would open your ears, if you would push away the cynicism and the apathy, the distractions, the busyness, if you would listen for one minute this morning, I wonder if you might hear a voice behind you, a voice that's been following you your entire life, a voice that's been pursuing you, provoking you, that speaks your name in a way that no one else has or will, inviting you into resurrection life, inviting you into his presence. Will you cling to him as your solution to running away from joy, running away from God as your answer to death itself? Will you let Jesus speak your name and will you take his hand and let, you lead, let him lead you back to the garden you were meant to live in? Let's pray. Father, there is only one being in the universe that can speak our name and pull us out of death and back into life. And that person is Jesus. So this entire morning, God, the whole reason we're here as a church is to create the space for you to do that. I can't do that. A song can't do that. No one can do that but Jesus, whose tomb was empty 2,000 years ago, and we now proclaim him as risen. So would you, in each of our hearts this morning, speak our names. And lead us back to the tree of life, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.